welcome to Time Traveling Team, the weekly podcast where we review every story of Doctor Who right from the very beginning. I'm Patty. And I'm Trisha. This week, we join the Doctor, Zoe, and Jamie as they face off against the Crotons. We'll be discussing the Doctor, the Companions, the Villains, and giving the story a final score out of five. We'd also love to hear your thoughts on this story, so in order to join the discussion, you can check us out at Time Team, that's T-I-M-E-T-E-A-M-P, on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, or you can email us at timetravelingteam at teamproductions.com. Now though, I should give you a blistering recap of the story. <laughs> at an assembly of the Gone people, a man named Abu and a woman named Vanna have been selected to be the designated companions of the Crotons. This is seemingly a great honour, and as they are being dressed in lavish ceremonial robes, the lover of the woman, whose name is Tara, protests her selection, but he is told by the head of the assembly, who is his father, Celerus, that they must obey the Crotons' laws. Elsewhere on the planet, the TARDIS lands, but Jamie and Zoe are not too keen to explore the seemingly dead planet due to the heavy amounts of sulfur in the air and the twin suns overhead. The doctor says if it was dangerous, then the TARDIS' sensors would have warned them, and he presses on, using an umbrella to shield himself from the heat. They make their way through a rocky crevice, and when they reach the top, they see the gone city below them. Jamie calls her attention to a metallic structure at the base of a nearby cliff, and they go down to investigate. Jamie notices that the sulfuric smell is stronger at the entrance hatch to the building, and the doctor ushers them away, saying it is not a building, but actually a machine. As they leave, they hear a hum coming from the machine, and they take cover as the entrance hatch opens, and they see Abu stagger out. They then watch horrified as he is blasted by two jets of vapour from nozzles on either side of the door, and completely evaporated, leaving only the ceremonial robes behind. The travellers then flee the scene. At the Gond Assembly, Thara, who abhors the laws of the Crotons and is doubtful of their existence, refuses to let Vanna go and fends off attempts from the guards to send her through the hatchway. Celerus tries to make him cooperate, but he finally relents when Vanna begs him to let her go so as to protect him from harm by the guards. Meanwhile, the travellers have entered the city and see the procession at the hatchway and go to stop a repeat of what happened to Abu, but they are confronted by more guards. Jamie challenges the guard captain to a fight, but refuses the weapon that is offered to him. Jamie eventually gains the upper hand and throws the guard captain to the ground. Celerus notices the commotion and he goes to investigate after Vanna goes through the hatch. He is accompanied by Thara and the head of security, Elek, and together they ask who the travellers are, but instead the doctor asks them about the machine. He is told that the machine is inhabited by the Crotons, but this again elicits an argument from Thara. The travellers then inform the group about Abu's fate, revealing that they have been in the wasteland, a fact which horrifies the guns who say the travellers are now contaminated. The doctor says that the wasteland is now safe, but Jamie reminds him about Vanna, and together with Zoe they rush out to save her, followed by a defiant Thara. They arrive at the hatchway, and the Doctor and Thara use rocks to block the nozzles. Moments later, a dazed van emerges, and the Doctor grabs her, sacrificing his umbrella to shield them from one of the nozzles that manages to discharge its vapour. Vanna is in a near-catatonic state, and Thara says that they can tend her at his father's house. At Celeris's house, the group explains to Celeris what has occurred, whilst the Doctor attempts to bring Vanna out of her near-catatonic state by hypnosis. Celerus says that every year the two most intelligent members of Gon society are sent to the Crotons, but none that have gone through have ever been seen again. Zoe asks what the Crotons are like, but Celerus says that no one has seen them for millennia. The Doctor joins them after putting Vanna to sleep, and Celerus then recounts the origins of the Crotons. He says that according to legends, silver men came from the sky but were attacked by the native Gons. The silver men then launched a chemical bomb that destroyed the, the surrounding area, creating the wasteland. Afterwards, a truce was struck between the two races, and the Gons have been providing sacrifices ever since in exchange for information from the Crotons' vast reserves of knowledge. Gon society has been built on assistance and information from the Crotons, 
which the doctor likens to a self-perpetuating slavery. The doctor says that they need to be stopped, but Cerebus doesn't know how to reveal the truth to the other gods without starting a new war with the Crotons. Suddenly, a man enters the room, who Cerebus identifies as his friend, Beta. Beta informs Cerebus that Tara and some of his friends intend to destroy the learning computers given to them by the Crotons in an attempt to lure them out. They rush back to the city to try and stop them, taking a shortcut through the wasteland as they do so. Back at the Gon City, a custodian is doing his rounds when he's attacked by Tara and his band of friends. They demand that he tells them all he knows about the Crotons, and he says that occasionally they give him direct instructions, but they never emerge from the machine structure. Tara and his friends then start destroying some of the learning computers. This activity is monitored by a security droid in a control room, and suddenly a booming robotic voice calls out, ordering them to stop and to leave. Tara ignores the commands and leads his friends in launching assault on the machines. The doctor arrives with the others and stops the group from doing any more damage. Cedrus berates Tara for his actions, but he stops when a robotic ice lock emerges from the machine structure. The group watches on as it snakes its way into the room and focuses on the doctor, forcing him to the ground as it closes in on him. Episode 2 The doctor covers his face and the ice lock seems to lose focus, thereby allowing him to get back to his feet. He realises that the ice lock is attuned to his face, and when it is obscured, it doesn't know what to do. Zoe says that the Crotons must be aware of his face, and he says that there is most likely a scanner in the walls of the machine that they will need to find. One of the guards tries to sneak up on the ice lock, but it turns out at the last moment and evaporates him before retreating back into its housing. The doctor says that it must have been issued a one-time kill order and is retreated now that its function has been served, regardless that it killed the wrong target. Tara uses this as an example of the Crotons' tyranny, but Celera says that they don't stand a chance against them in an uprising. The robotic voice announces that the Gon's leader is dead and orders all Gon's to leave the building. Tara again tries to rally the others, but Celerus tells everyone to leave, which they do. Back at Celerus' house, the Doctor is checking up on Vanna, and he discusses with Zoe the odd knowledge gaps the Gons have as a result of the Crotons' teachings, which the Doctor says must have some significance. They are joined by Celerus and Jamie, and the Doctor asks if they are allowed to return to the Learning Hall, as he wishes to take a look around with Zoe. He instructs Jamie to stay behind to look after Vanna, but Celerus insists on going as well, as he wants to know more about what is going on. As they leave, Zoe promises Jamie that she will try and keep the Doctor out of trouble. As they look around, the Doctor notices a hatchway in the floor that Celerus says leads to the underhall at the used section of the city. The Doctor tells Zoe to keep an eye out while seeing Celerus go down into it to see how far it extends underneath the machine structure. After they go, Zoe's curiosity gets the better of her and she goes to take a look at one of the learning machines. The Doctor and Celerus return to find her still sitting at the machine with a dazed look in her eyes. The Doctor takes the learning headset off her, and she still remains in a gleeful trance-like state, saying that the Crotons were pleased with her. The Doctor tries to bring her back to normality by highlighting the dangers of the Crotons, but he is interrupted by Celerus, who points out that Zoe has surpassed all the intelligence scores previously recorded. Back at Celerus' house, Vanna wakes up and starts to scream about a burning ball and seeing flashing lights overhead, but Jamie and Tara manage to calm her down. Jamie and Tara think what she experienced was another of the Croton's weapons, and Jamie tells Tara to look after Vanna whilst he goes to fetch the Doctor. In the Hall of Learning, Zoe and the Doctor are investigating the hatchway, and Zoe asks what they saw in the Underhall. The Doctor says that they found a root structure, and Zoe says that it is impossible, as that would mean that the machine is organic in nature. The Doctor says that there are life forms like it in the universe, and he wants to take a sample of it for analysis. Suddenly, a gong is sounded, and Celerus goes to retrieve a note from a nearby box. The notice from the Crotons stating that they have selected Zoe to be the next one to enter the hatchway. 
Selva says that she must go through or the Crotons will punish the Gons for their defiance. The Doctor gives out to her saying that the Crotons don't know that she is not a Gond and he resolves to take the test so that he will be summoned to accompany her. After a poor start, the Doctor manages to complete the test, gloating that he scored higher than Zoe despite his mistakes at the start. He then realises that he is under the same euphoric influence that Zoe was earlier under and snaps himself out of it. A few minutes later, the gong sounds again and Cerus collects the note from the box that states the Doctor has also been selected. The duo reluctantly go through the hatchway, just as Jamie arrives, but the door closes and is horrified when Cerus says that they have been selected. Jamie gives out to Cerus for letting them go inside and he approaches the hatch to try and find a way in. Finding it sealed tight, he looks around for something that he can use as a crowbar. The Doctor and Zoe make their way through the structure, noticing that it actually appears to be a spaceship. They are then guided to a pair of chairs in the centre of the room, and as they go to sit down, the Doctor gives Zoe a length of chain to hold with him. He indicates to a force field generator above them, and he says the chain should help dispel some of the energy penning them down. They are then subjected to the experience that Vanna described to Jamie and Tara, and once it is over, they conclude that the process is designed to extract mental power and convert it into pure energy. As predicted, the chain helped dispel some of the force directed at them, allowing them to regain their composure. They then notice a water tank nearby, filled with a bubbling liquid of some description that the doctor seems to recognise. He takes a sample to examine it, and Zoe notices a set of air pipes, the type that astronauts might use for oxygen, running along the floor near the tank. The doctor says that the liquid is actually a crystalline version of the primordial soup, and they see something start to grow in it. They flee from the room as one of the air pipes makes its way into the tank. Their escape is monitored by two of the Crotons, who are a large bipedal mixture of machine and crystal, and they wonder why the Doctor and Zoe are not following the normal pattern of the Gons, seeing that maybe the conditioning sequence is no longer working. The Doctor and Zoe manage to find their way to the exit hatchway, but they see that the circuitry has been sabotaged, and they attempt to repair it so they can escape. They manage to activate the door using a piece of mica rock that the Doctor picked up earlier, but they did remember about the nozzles on the other side of the door. Zoe says that they have no choice but to risk it, and the Doctor instructs her to jump to the side rather than walk down the exit ramp. They escape safely, and their departure is monitored by the Crotons, who summarise that they are not Gons. One of them says that he will order them to be captured for examination. Meanwhile, the other one notices Jamie trying to break in, citing the fact that he is not a Gond, and theorising that the Gons have entered into an alliance with the new arrivals. Jamie is lured inside to be used as a test subject, but Cellaris tries to stop him, but to no avail. Jamie is captured moments later and subjected to the mind machine. The Crotons note that his brain is more primitive than they thought, and they say that the mind machine will most likely kill him. Jamie then collapses from the strain. Episode 3 The machine is shut off when one of the Crotons points out that they can learn about the Doctor and Zoe from his brain. They then look at a view screen that shows the Doctor and Zoe back in the valley. Jamie recovers from his ordeal and is immediately interrogated by the Crotons about an image on the view screen showing the TARDIS. Jamie says that it is a time and space machine and he looks on in sadness as the Croton says it looks like the Doctor and Zoe are leaving, despite Zoe's earlier off-screen protest that they can't leave Jamie behind. They begin preparations to fire on it and destroy the TARDIS, but at the last moment decide to spare it and instead ask Jamie technical questions about it. They deem him to be of no value when he can't answer anything, and so one of them goes to investigate it. Jamie tries to sneak away, but he is caught by the remaining Croton, who states that he will be dispersed like Abu in due course. Jamie demands to know why the Crotons need the Doctor and Zoe, and he is told that their higher brain function is needed to help power the ship since the Gon's brains have proved inadequate so far. 
The Croton tells Jamie to stop his questions, but Jamie, after having spotted a nearby Croton weapon, distracts his captor by talking about dying in ignorance. The Croton reveals that its species do not die, but instead revert to an inert, slurry-like hibernative form. The Croton then turns back to the view screen to watch its colleague approach the TARDIS, not noticing Jamie picking up the weapon. In Beta's house, Elik enters with a squad of guards and tries to convince him to join in the resistance movement against the Crotons. Despite his desire to be free from their control, Beta says that they don't stand a chance against the Crotons, as they only know what the Crotons have allowed them to learn, a sentiment he says was echoed by the Doctor. Elik then informs him about the fate of the Doctor and Zoe, which seems to sway Beta towards joining him, but the scientist says that he needs more time to come up with an effective way to combat the Crotons. Elik berates him for his hesitant attitude and forbids him from discussing the matter with Celerus, saying that he is now the one in control of the guns. Beta mocks Elik for his hunger for power and berates him for the cost of life his ambition will accrue as they do not have the sufficient level of weaponry technology to stand a chance against the Crotons. In Celerus's house, Tara tells his father that Vanna seems to have stabilised for the night. Celerus tells Tara about the Doctor and Zoe entering the machine, which leads to an angry outburst from Tara, accusing his father of collaborating with the Crotons. Celerus denies this, but says that they are helpless against the might of the Crotons, but Tara informs his father about Elik's agenda and his recent promotion to the head of the council. Celerus says that Elik must be stopped, as his way will lead to the deaths of hundreds of guns, and instead they must lull the Crotons into a false sense of security by acting as normal as possible. That way they should be able to overcome the Crotons by using the element of surprise. He then goes to Beta's house and demands that Elik stand down from his plan to attack the Crotons, but he is ignored as Elik commands his followers to prepare their arsenal for an immediate attack. After they leave, Celerus informs Beta about what he and the Doctor saw in the Underhall and outlines a plan of attack to him. Back at the TARDIS, the Doctor and Zoe emerge carrying some bags of equipment and discussing their experience in the Croton machine. They discuss how it is essentially a giant mousetrap, promising knowledge, but in actuality being a lure for the most suitable brains to power their reactivation machines. The Doctor then starts to scrape away at a nearby sulfur deposit, but Zoe urges him to hurry as she feels that they are being watched. He then questions her knowledge about the element Tellurium, but she stops when the Croton appears and holds them at gunpoint, and orders them back to their ship, which it calls a Dinotrope. Meanwhile, Jamie uses the weapon on the Croton, which causes it to become disorientated, but it manages to knock Jamie to the ground. It is then revealed that the Crotons cannot see in natural light, as the one holding the Doctor and Zoe loses sight of them, and requests guidance from its colleague. The Doctor and Zoe use the distraction as a chance to escape before it can regain its bearings, after the one in the ship recovers from Jamie's attack. It is then ordered to destroy the TARDIS, and the Doctor and Zoe watch in horror as the TARDIS disappears from sight. The Croton then leaves, but moments later, the TARDIS rematerializes in a different spot, and the Doctor reveals that he activated the HADS, Hostile Action Displacement System, which causes the TARDIS to flee in the event of it being attacked. They then make their way back to the gun settlement. In the Dinotrope, Jamie wakes up again and overhears the Croton say that the machine will run out of power in three hours. He then slips away unnoticed. The Doctor and Zoe arrive back at Celeris' house and meet Tara and a fully revived Vanna. The Doctor notices that they have bags packed and they inform him that Celeris has ordered the settlement to be evacuated in preparation for his attack on the Dinotrope. This seems to alarm the Doctor and he then asks to be taken to Beta. They arrive at his house and the doctor asks him to start working on a sulfur-based solvent. Zoe points out that Jamie is missing and possibly in the Dinotrope, which causes her and the doctor to take off to find him. They arrive at the Underhall and see Celerus putting his plan into action, pulling down the structural supports beneath the Dinotrope. The doctor orders them to stop as the roof starts to crack and crumble. 
The doctor yells at Zoe to get out before he collapses beneath a pile of rubble. Episode 4 Tara goes into the underhall to retrieve Zoe, but she tells him what happened to the doctor, and he goes to look for him. Tara manages to find him, having survived unscathed, but more sections of the roof collapse down on top of them, but only the doctor manages to get away to safety. Zoe goes to help the doctor free the stricken Tara from the debris. Inside the Dynatrope, the Crotons manage to stabilise the ship, and then look at the view screen to catch a glimpse of their assailants. They see the Doctor and Zoe and order that they be captured. Back outside, Zoe is tending to Tara, who has suffered a fractured leg, but the Doctor urges her to hurry as the Crotons could launch a counterattack at any moment. Severus arrives and laments the failure of his plan, but the Doctor points out a leak stemming from the part of the Dynatrope, which is draining its power. Vanna arrives with a sample of the sulfuric acid that the Doctor asked Beta to prepare, but Zoe then points out that Jamie is still missing. Severus confirms that he is indeed inside the Dynatrope, and the duo rush off to rescue their friend. Moments later, Elik and his followers arrive and berate Severus for his plan's failure, and the loss of resources and manpower cost them. Severus points out that the Dynatrope is damaged, and it could be possible to lure the Crotons out, but Elik instead says that he will order a mass assault on it. Severus tries to get him to see reason, but Elik instead orders him to be arrested. Before he is taken captive, though, Croton emerges from the Dynatrope and demands to be given the Doctor and Zoe. Elik questions their importance, and the Croton kills one of his followers to coerce him to obey. Elik makes a bargain that if they hand over the Doctor and Zoe, then the Crotons will leave the planet. Severus again begs Elik to listen to him and not hand over the others, but once again he is ignored. In the Dynatrope, Jamie is searching for an exit when he comes across the bit of mica that the Doctor earlier used. He manages to open the door a bit, forcing him to crawl to safety. The Doctor and Zoe arrive and put him to freedom before the nozzles fired or evaporating steam at them. However, the happy reunion is cut short when the Doctor tells him to go instruct Beta to make more of the sulfuric solution, and a breathless Jamie trudges off to carry out his task whilst they rush back to the learning hall. Jamie arrives back at Beta's house and helps him brew the solution. Beta admits that due to the Crotons' control over the Gond education, he is unsure just how volatile their creation would be, a statement that is emphasised by the random explosions from the various brewing pots. Meanwhile, the Doctor and Zoe's return is noticed by Elex scouts, who report back to him, and he orders an ambush. Severus and Van overhear this and set up a plan to help the travellers. Severus tries to convince Elex's right-hand man to turn on him, but he refuses, and he manages to alert the other guards in time to stop Vanna, who was slipping outside, thanks to Severus's distraction. As she is taken away, a bottle of sulfuric acid that the Doctor had given her falls out of her pocket unnoticed, but Severus picks it up. Moments later, the Doctor and Zoe arrive back and are immediately apprehended by Elik and his men. This is observed by the Crotons, who are pleased as the Dynatrope has only 22 minutes of power left. The prisoners are then forced into the Dynatrope, with the Doctor futilely asking Vaa for help. Severus then dashes forward and manages to get into the Dynatrope before the doors close. He hands the bottle to the Doctor, but is then killed by the Crotons. They demand the Doctor assist them, as the ship only has 12 minutes of power left. Zoe tells the Doctor not to help them, but he says that he must, as if the time runs out, that there will be a cataclysmic feedback loop that could destroy the planet. The Crotons tell them that four highly intelligent brains are required to pilot the ship, and the Doctor and Zoe must help them as the two other Crotons were killed during a space battle that forced their ship to land on the Gons planet. That is the reason why they tried to teach the Gons, so that they could reach the level of intelligence required to help pilot the ship. As they are talking, the Doctor hands the bottle of acid to Zoe. Outside, Jamie and Beta return with a large vat of sulfuric acid and are told about the fate of the Doctor and Zoe. Jamie berates Elik for handing over his friends, 
but Elix says it was worth it in order to get rid of the Crotons. He then starts to leave and tells the others that they should leave as well, as the learning hall will most likely collapse when the Dynatrope takes off. Jamie refuses to leave though, and Beta and Vanna say they will stay as well to help him rescue the Doctor and Zoe. Inside the Dynatrope, the Doctor distracts the Crotons so Zoe can drop the acid into the tank of slurry, which the Crotons are connected to via the air pipes. The Doctor and Zoe then stall for time in order for the acid to take effect, and after a few minutes, the Crotons start to dissolve, as does the Dynatrope itself. They rush outside and see Jamie, Beta and a few others pouring sulfuric acid into the crack in the Dynatrope. Zoe questions the Doctor about how he knew the sulfuric acid would work, but he ushers her and Jamie back to the TARDIS when she points out the flaws in his thinking as the acid wasn't guaranteed to work against all the components of the Dynatrope. They slip away unnoticed as Tara vows to regain leadership from Elik. Beta turns to ask the Doctor for his assistance in setting up a new learning system for the Gons and is disappointed to find him gone. The travellers return to the TARDIS and take off for their next adventure. End of the story. So, that is the Crouton Crotons uh, <laughs> defeated. So now we're going to take a trip to the trivia spot. What have we got this week? Cool. So for the Crotons, the air date was the 28th of December 1968 to the 18th of January 1969. The writer of the story is Robert Holmes. Now this is the first of 18 one-eight writing credits for Bob Holmes on Doctor Who. Jesus. If you count individual episodes, so this would be four episodes, mm-hmm. Bob has more writing credits than any other classic Who writer and possibly any other Who writer ever with 64 individual episodes to his name. Jesus Christ. Bob would later go on to take over as script editor after Terence Dix from 1975 through 1977. And throughout his time as a writer and then later on as script editor, Bob was responsible for some major contributions to the Doctor Who mythos, including the companions Liz Shaw, Joe Grant, Sarah Jane Smith and Robana, villains like the Master, the Sontarans and the Autons, as well as Gallifrey itself and Rassilon. All of that comes from Bob. That is some fucking pretty heavy hitting <laughs> additions to the, to the franchise. Yeah, and like obviously, like Liz and Joe and Sarah Jane and Mama, obviously they were done in conjunction with the producer. Yeah, but like definitely for Liz, Joe, and Sarah Jane, their first stories, Bob wrote all of them. He wrote Spearhead, he wrote Tower of the Autons, and he wrote the Time Warrior. Jesus, that's and like uh, obviously, like you know, we'll see them throughout the run of the show. I think Spearhead Autons are probably the creepiest Autons. I, agree. I, th- I think they're the Autons done at their best. Hmm. Um, Bob sadly passed away in 1986, but like I said, we're going to be talking about Bob for years to come at this point, um, through his time as a writer and a script editor. And I, I don't think it can really be um, overstated how much he has contributed to this show. Yeah, no. The director for this story is David Maloney. We did discuss David before, um, back when we were talking about The Mind Robber. So this is his second story out of nine. So we will be discussing David a lot more again as well. So with this story, um, interesting thing, it was actually submitted for season two mm. of the show. And it was called The Trap at the time. As in, wait, no, as in all the way back season two or Tron season two? No, no, no. As in 
all the way back heart on season two. Yeah. But it was rejected because they felt that the Crotons were a bit too similar to the Mechanoids, who were obviously going to be in the chase. So they didn't mm-hmm. want to have another story with a similar thing. So three years later, Bob resubmits the outline, this time calling it the Space Trap, um, to a new production team. It was originally commissioned to be delivered as the penultimate story of season six. But Bob finished early, <laughs> so <laughs> it went into production, obviously, late 1968, oh. when a different story, Prison in Space, fell by the wayside. So it took him, what? three years to get it done mm-hmm. he finished the script early <laughs> good man bob <laughs> yeah here's what i prepared earlier yeah um the cast and crew weren't massively gone on this story to be honest um mm. dave maloney the director said it was a disaster and he felt that that was his fault fraser didn't care for it either he said it was horrible and Terence Dix, who's the script editor at this point in time, mm-hmm. felt that it worked as a story, but the monster didn't really work. He said the Crotons themselves weren't very threatening and they were kind of useless. So just to give a, a kind of a description to people, the Crotons are what appear to be like those two, you know, those type of pipes that come out the back of a dryer. Mm. Those were legs, a big, weird metallic block. The arms again with the little pincer claws, and then a giant, essentially rock salt lamp as a head. Yeah. And no eyes. No eyes. And they're in constant fear of looking at their boat to tip over face forward. Yeah, they are very um, top heavy. Yes. In and the. Not, not, uh, in a good, not in a good way. Yeah. Um, guess what? The but. Crotons were originally intended to be somewhat of a replacement for. The Daleks. We've discussed previously Terry Nation, his ownership of the Daleks, the whole issue with that, and the BBC being able to use them. The The Crotons don't have the same impact. I, I don't think I'm giving too much away from our discussion when I say the Crotons do not have the same impact as the Daleks. And obviously, later on, we've discussed that Terry did allow the Daleks to come back again. So that was fine. And like, we, we've kind of talked about it as like the Daleks... Like... The Daleks, like a lot of stuff in Doctor Who, it's lightning in a bottle. You're, n- you're never going to replicate it. You can you can make another heavy hitter, like, like the Cybermen, mm. but you can't replicate what you did with the Daleks. No. And like th- there are times like where, like, I think it happens nearly every single franchise, where it's like, oh, how about we try, you know, bringing in something that will help, you know, be the next version of that. And it's like, no, you can't. How would you instead focus on making the first of something? Yeah. No, I would agree. I think we see that a lot in, you know, Star Killer Base was a third Death Star. <laughs> Did you know? Um, I've seen some amazing things online about like how that could have been rewritten. Mm. So, like, they were, imagine if they were like superstar destroyers that had Star Killer weapons on them. Yeah. That would have been a very interesting take on it. While it's still yeah. going with the star destroy or the planet destroying weapons. Anyway, mm. conversation about that. Yeah, exactly. Um, I mentioned last week that in last week's story, that was when Fraser had kind of said, "Look, I'm thinking of leaving the show." You know, he said, "I want, I want to go." Originally, he would have departed in this story. Well, the story that was originally meant to fill this slot, 
and been replaced with a male companion named Nick. Spelled N-I-K. <laughs> um, ultimately, Fraser decided to wait yeah. and to leave with Patrick. And when we get to their final story, I'll discuss that in more detail. There's a great interview with Fraser around that on one of the DVDs. So I'll get more into it when we get to that at that point. Yeah, there's something very nice about leaving with the doctor that you start off with. And I, I, as far as I know, as far as I can think of, they're the only duo to do it. Yeah. Well, you've got Ace and Seven, but that wasn't really the same. Well, and I suppose Seven was in the movie, kind of. Yeah, Seven was in the movie. Yeah, no, they would be the only ones. Um, like the... the there's a the documentary on one of the DVDs. I don't think it's for the invasion. I think it's for the mind robber, um, where Fraser explains everything, and it's it's really good the way he describes it. And I'll obviously recap it when we get to that point. But, um, basically, it was it was they decided that together they'd they'd leave. On to our cast. So as Farah, we have Gilbert Win, Wine. Win Win. I think Win Win. Okay, we're gonna go with Win. This is his only Doctor Who acting credit, though he did appear in the Torchwood episode, The Gathering. His non-Who credits include Zedkars, Heavens Above, Softly Softly, Jack and Nori, Hawkeye the Pathfinder, Coronation Street, Bergerac, and Da, Vinci, da Vinci's, and Da Vinci's Demons. Celeris is played by James Copeland. This is the only Doctor Who acting credit for James. His non-Who credits include... Red Gauntlet, The Flying Doctor, Emergency Ward 10, Dr. Finley's Casebook, Zed Cars, Crown Court, and Maggie. James passed away back in 2002. As Beta, we have James Cairncross. This is the second and final acting credit for James. We previously discussed him way back when in Reign of Terror, where he played Lemaitre. I knew he seemed familiar Fuck the whole it. time I was watching it. Yeah, geez, like there, there was something very familiar about him. All he was missing was a bicorn hat. Yeah. <laughs> I, was, I was like, has he been in something else? Is he in a later story? Because I, I didn't look him up until after I watched it. I was like, no, no, he was Lametta. Elec is played by Philip Maddock. This is the first of four Doctor Who acting credits for Philip. We'll see him again in The War Games, The Brain of Morbius, and The Power of Crawl. He was also in the feature film Dalek's Invasion Earth, 2150 AD. Stupid title. And he has done some work for Big Finish. Yeah, where I taught, I got him confused with the guy that plays Noel Coward in Star. Because they have very similar voices. Jesus. Yeah. What? They do have very similar voices, but fuck it, they look completely different. They, well, um, <laughs> I've always seen Star once, okay? Leave me alone. You need to watch it again. It's a brilliant film. Yes. Philip's non-Who work includes A Mind to Kill, Moonacre, A Very British Coup, Jack and Nori, The Life and Times of David Lloyd George, Target, Emmerdale Farm, Space 1999, The Last of the Mohicans, the TV miniseries version, Zed Cars, The Avengers, and so much more. I can't even try to list them all. Even if I, uh, if I remember correctly from your 2150 AD trivia notes, He's the U-boat captain in the very famous Dad's Army scene of Don't Tell Him Your Name, Pike. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Um, his IMDb page went on for fucking ages. So I stopped. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
Philip passed away back in 2012. Cool. So we have gone through our story summary. Thank you very much, Paddington. We have gone through our trivia. Thank, Thank you very much. much. You're yeah. right. <laughs> <laughs> and now we're on to our character discussion. Mm-hmm. So in our character discussion, we have the doctor. We have our companions. I think in this story, we're going to have a prominent character or two. And then we have our villains. So Paddington, we'll start off with the beginning with the man himself. What were your thoughts on the doctor this time around? So... Like a few other stories before us, uh, a tale of two doctors, I think. Uh, one hand, we've got like the brave defender, like the where he put, you know, he goes to get Zoe out of the way of the the falling rubble. We've got the crafty scientist. Uh, sorry, we've got the scientist and the crafty rogue. You know, which his whole fucking back and forth um, bullshitting with the um, crotons, putting his life on the line to rescue Vanna with the umbrella. R.I.P. Umbrella, thank you for your loyal service. <laughs> <laughs> um, and yeah, as I said, like trying to stop you know Celerus again, his men from collapsing the underhall. Like he's like, he's right in the danger when the when the danger is happening. Um, no, we also get to see the petulant narcissist who demands to be the smartest person in the room. Hmm. Uh, also, we get to again. Uh, it's actually it's starting to kind of grind on me a small bit. Him taking Jamie's loyalty for granted, hmm. uh, and like he barely gives him a chance to catch his breath when he comes out of the the dinotrope. Right? and he's just like, "Doctor, come on!" And he's like, "No, Jamie, you go to Bayless House and you tell him this, that, and the other, and just hurry, Jamie." And it's like, "Like motherfucker, <laughs> you're going to get slapped upside <laughs> the head one of these days, you know?" Um, and. I suppose true and all, fantastic performances by Troughton, hmm. as, as always. I and that's like, that's the, it's almost like Jack Gleason, you know, the guy that played Joffrey. It's hmm. like you know, you're such a fucking shithead. Well done to you on acting the role. <laughs> that, 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 <laughs> that that type of thing, you know. Um, so I, it's just like you know, yeah, fantastic performance by Troughton as the kind of a real Jekyll and Hyde version of his own Doctor. You know, hmm. that was my thoughts anyway. What were your thoughts? Yeah, I had similar. Um, I found it a little bit weird to get to grips with him in the story because, like I said, on the one side, he is so good um, as like a you know protagonist. Do you know the way he cared for the guns, like immediately, you know, wanting to find out what happened to them, the way he kept advocating for them, you know, him sciencing it up. His time with Zoe was great to see. Um, because we don't get that very often and the fact that he's like no no it's always coming with me um to the sciencey place which would have made sense in the invasion but however but again like you said he's a few things that for me were not so good um he called jamie fat oh he was that's just scoot, rude scoot under the door yeah that's just rude and then like you said he pushed him back into things after jamie nearly died like and he made some condescending comments to Zoe. Well, he made one condescending comment, which is that Zoe is a great scientist, or she's she's a genius, but that sometimes her analytical mind isn't great. Um, and him having to be the smartest person in the room. So 
are you taking that from when Zoe was called to go into the thing and he was like, oh, I, I have to go with you. I'm going to do it as well. Is that no, where you're taking that from? No, or? I, I'm, t- I'm taking that from the fact of he like, he got the first couple of questions wrong. Hmm. And then he eventually managed to beat Zoe's score. Hmm. And he acted like, oh, he was, you know, you know, he was essentially in a peacock mode, kind of going, "I'm the smartest one. Look, look at my amazing score." And it's like, are you, you're completely ignoring the fact that you know you fucked up Royal and Zoe had to kind of set you on the right path to answering these questions, because no, like the whole thing of like, "Why oh, better go in?" It was like, no, it's actually a legitimate thing that he needs to, he wants to protect Zoe, so mm-hmm. he has to take the test because otherwise he won't be allowed in. And you can't be guaranteed that if you just dash into the dinotrope that there's not some kind of weird murder bot there that says no, you're not smart enough. Um, so no, I was just pulling it from his reaction to finishing the test. Yeah, like I... The way I took it is probably the way the writer intended it, which is the doctor trying to be playful with Zoe around, oh, well, I got the higher score. Um, because Zoe can be a bit up her own arse a bit around her intelligence as well. Mm. Um, you know, she even says it like, oh, he's nearly as intelligent as me. <laughs> <laughs> which is funny when Zoe does it. Yeah. Um, it comes across condescending when he does it, which maybe that's our read of the situation. Maybe we're judging him unfairly in that, you know. Um, but I sort of saw it as him sort of making it into a game between them. And then being like, I won, you know, rather than him sort of asserting his intelligent dominance. Yeah, see, I think what it is is that, like, I think ever since the wheel in space, Hmm. I'm always aware of his treatment of Zoe when it comes to the academic side of things. Yeah. Because as we've seen as the stories have gone on, Zoe has come out of her shell more and more. And Hmm. like she's no longer just like this weird, uh, you know, smart uh, kind of automaton type thing. Yeah, like we actually get to see the, like well, I was going to say the part of her that they beat out of her at the academy. You know, <laughs> you must have no emotion. We're actually getting to see that now. So it could, like, it could be that I'm just still hold, um, hanging on to how he was first treating her in mm. the first couple of adventures. Um. So yeah, like for for me, like the the negatives on this are the way he was treating his companions. Mm. Nowhere near as bad as what they've been before, and. No not enough for me to sort of um I wouldn't go I wouldn't tail of two doctors it it was a bit weird but I wouldn't go so far as to say that he was sort of Jekyll and Heidi I w- uh, personally I wouldn't go that far with it uh, but I can totally get where you would have yeah and again I, th- I just I think it's like again the the taking of the taking Jamie for granted type thing you know hmm. I felt that it was the tail of two but I, it may be a review but like again after this discussion might change matters you know so now we're on to our companions, where we have obviously our ongoing companions of Jamie and Zoe. Mm-hmm. So who do we want to discuss first, Paddy? Um, how about we discuss Jamie first? Cool. So what are your thoughts on Jamie? The McCrimmon effect is in full effect. <laughs> <laughs> I have a question for you right yeah. here on the McCrimmon effect. So years and years and years ago, yeah. way back when, when we were both just out of college. Yeah. And you were living in Deer Park. Mm-hmm. You explained the McCrimmon effect to me. Right. That was basically predating the Wharf effect. Mm-hmm. Now, I, I, I'm going to call bullshit 
on the okay. McCrimmon effect, right? Okay. The wharf effect is wharf goes up against someone and gets his ass handed to him every time to show how strong the enemy is. Yeah. Every time the McCrimmon effect has come into effect, Jamie has kicked ass. Not the first few times. Ah, no. but no. Okay, okay. Bear in mind the first few times are the underwater menace. Mm. And a door <laughs> from Tomb of the Cybermen. Yeah. Um, so I think I. Right, I'll put it this way. My rush, shall we say, to get every single episode, because at that stage now, I remember I was watching a story a day. Yeah. Because I, I set myself the line that I wanted to have watched all by my birthday. I think you had nothing else to do with your life. Like I know, I was like I was working like full time, and I was like, "Cool, you know, I'm gonna watch a story a day, and I'm gonna fall asleep watching certain stories. I got to start watching them again." But I think what it was is that because Jamie was was literally the designated muscle of the group, Mm. that there was a lot of times where he might have been beaten to the ground. But he always got back up and he always helped resolve the thing. Now, also, kind of, I think um, Pat, no, Packer from last week. Packer. When he, Packer. Packer! <laughs> when he sort of, like, you know, fucking bitch left Jamie in, like, episode two or three of the invasion. But what I will say is that the recurrent effect is far superior to the wharf effect in the sense of, like, yes, Jamie is the person to take on the physical advantage, but he more often than not comes out on top. Yeah, but I think the Worf effect is the fact that Worf gets beaten. Every, yeah. I think that's the effect. Yeah. <laughs> the McCrimmon effect is, you know, the designated muscle being the one to jump in and yeah. test the strength of the enemy. Worf uh, tests the strength of the enemy and loses. True. <laughs> although it was pretty dicey here on this one. It was for a yeah, while, although, yeah. you know, Jamie did choose to handicap himself yeah. by not using an axe. Mm-hmm, exactly. Um, so anyway, that... I've derailed your thoughts on Jamie. I'm sorry. <laughs> Fair enough. <laughs> um, but no, like this was a great showing from Jamie. Like you know, strong, resourceful, uh, intelligent, and again loyal. All the usual Jamie traits. And again, you feel for him when the doctor, you know, doesn't really give him enough time to catch his catch his breath. Like you, like fuck it, you know, Jamie, you sit there. I'll have a, like it's like you feel like a mam scolding your teacher. <laughs> it's going to teach her that's like scolding your favorite your, your favorite child i was gonna say your child um but you know i thought this was great when uh jamie was like oh he's got a primitive brain let's just kill him wait a minute i don't want to die not knowing what's going on please monologue for me oh great villain <laughs> <laughs> I, I thought that was i thought that was fucking brilliant <laughs> that was very good that was very good all right what I love about Jamie in this is that it really emphasizes something that we've spoken about before and we didn't get to see it in the invasion because in the second half of the invasion Jamie got shot yeah, and then he just disappeared but we get to see it really strong in this story is that when Jamie is left alone so yeah. when the you know heroes the doctor and companions split where the doctor and one companion goes one way and one companion is left behind mm-hmm. when Jamie is alone we saw it in the mind robber we're seeing it here he still works as a character and he can still drive the plot in a positive way. Completely. He, he's not just sat there doing nothing. Unlike, except for last week where they decided not to have him there at all. Yeah. Um, 
you know, even if all he's doing in terms of plot is forcing the bad guys to monologue so we, the audience, understand exactly what's going on and he can buy himself more time. Like the whole time that he's, you know, having your man monologue and he's there like trying to get a handle on this disintegrator way, like weapon thingy so he can, you know, hold it and use it and stuff. I think that's great. It's a very Jamie thing. And like we've said it before, you know, Jamie may have a quote unquote primitive mind in comparison to the doctor and Zoe. But he has street smarts. Oh, like he, he really does. And like that's why And I you love... can drop him anywhere. Yeah. And that that's what I love about you know, Jamie as a character in a sense of like the more the long like the longer the show has gone on, hmm. the less of like the Highlander is in him. Because it no longer is something like a beastie, no longer is something like a strange fucking spooky phenomenon that that they shouldn't be involved in. It's literally a case of, you know, him at times like showing off like his like you know, being braggadocious by kind of going, Oh, you know, it could be these guys, Doctor, you know, or it could be you know, do you remember like that weird thing that we fought before? And it's like and then when he gets found out that it's not what I was expecting, he's like, Oh, <laughs> Um, but no, I just think I think this was a, a really good uh, story from Jamie's point of view. The one thing is, well, like you know, given that the split in the story was the Doctor and Zoe, and then Jamie was on his own for for the majority of three episodes, um, if not a little bit more than that, actually, um, you can see how much he worries about the Doctor and like how protective he is. Like when he has a word with Zoe before they before the Doctor and Zoe go. And he's like, oh, you know, keep an eye on him and make sure that he doesn't get into trouble or whatever. You can also tell, though, you know, to my point from the other week, how used to it he is that he is usually the one that goes with the doctor. Yeah. He's like, but, but I, but, uh, uh, <laughs> it's like, it seems to not compute that the doctor would choose to take someone other than him. Yeah. Like, it was different in the mind robber. They got separated. Yeah. Here, the doctor chose to leave Jamie behind playing nurse. And Jamie's like, but I, but, but what? <laughs> Learn to share, Jamie. Yeah. Learn to share. Can't, can't always be you off gallivanting. Time for that Zoe have her gallivanting. <laughs> Should we move on to Zoe with that? And, and her gallivanting, yes. And her gallivanting, yeah. Uh, oh. My thing with Zoe this time around is I actually, from a Zoe story perspective, this mm-hmm. is fantastic. Mm-hmm. Zoe the genius. Yeah. Helpful, potentially also harmful. Mm-hmm. So I have a question for you, right? I didn't raise this in the doctor section because it directly relates to Zoe yeah. um, and what Zoe did. When watching the episode, I thought the reason the doctor brought her to the learning hall. Mm-hmm was that he planned for them to use the machine. Because mm-hmm. he didn't seem to particularly want anyone else to go with them. Yeah. And in fact, he took Salaris underground and left Zoe with the machine. Mm-hmm. And I assumed that his expectation was that Zoe would use the machine to try and figure out what's happening. Yeah. Then he goes off on her for using the machine. Did I read that wrong? Did you get that sense as well when you were watching it? I got the sense of like you know like okay they were going to invest investigate the machines, and like, or like invest yeah because like there was the whole thing of like well you know you're being told your your intelligence is given by the crotons but it's very spotty, hmm. 
So like, I didn't know whether it was like, okay, the intent was to take a look at them, whether the intent was to actually use them or not. I'm not entirely sure. Um, because there's one or two things about this episode that I'm going to get into the overall that might tie into that aspect. Mm. Um, but one thing that I will say is that, do you remember back at the end of the Wheel in Space when like Zoe's being shown like the past adventures, you know, like, mm. what life is like on the Taurus? Clearly, he did not show her barbarous activities during the Planet of Giants. When you were told to not to touch anything, for the love of fucking God, do not touch anything. No, but my thing is, I, if Zoe had the same brain pattern as me, yeah. Zoe assumed that they were going there to touch the thing, and he just didn't want Celeris to know. Like, <laughs> th- this is where I have an issue with that, because he gives out to her mm-hmm. for what... I think would have been a logical move on her part. How is she meant to know what information is missing from this machine without interacting with it? Um, so that's where I feel that he kind of went off on her a bit. Like, you know, it was a bit unfair because the way I read the situation, like, as soon as he said, we're going to the learning hall. No, just me and Zoe are going to the learning hall. The minute he said that, I was like, okay, they're going to use the machines. Or one of them is going to use and one of them is going to watch and, and catalogue or whatever. And yeah, maybe she shouldn't have done it by herself. But the whole, like, Zoe, you stay here while I take Celeris underground seemed to be, hey, don't let the others know you're using it, but hey, you know, have a muck about with that and see what the hell is going on. Um, so yeah, I I don't know. I, I think Zoe got kind of short-shafted in that particular instance. I, well, I, no, I, I think... See, if you read it that way, then yeah, she completely did. But, like, there's there's no indication from the doctor's point of view, or even or acknowledgement afterwards, when they're the two of them themselves, that that was his plan. Yeah, but that's where I, that's where, like, afterwards it makes yeah. sense. But, like, in the moment, I was like, why the fuck are you giving out to her? Like, the subtext was there. Yeah. Muck about with the machine, try and figure out what's happening. <laughs> <laughs> apparently that's subtext that I just inferred out of nowhere um, and possibly Zoe did as well and the doctor who's usually all about the subtext was like no read the right. text <laughs> cool. F- fair enough if we ever like, if we ever you know end up in like these fucking scenarios I'm not leaving you alone <laughs> I'm not, I'm not, not, not a fucking hope most no, just, be, mo- just mo- you um, we'll just agree well in advance do we have subtext or do we just have text <laughs> No, as I said, I'm never leaving you alone. Mostly for the fact that you're the one that's probably going to figure out how to you know, get us out of life. But at the same time, also on the off chance that you know you push the big red button of doom. Thanks. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um. So yeah, I think with that, I think I think she's a little bit short shafted there. But I do love the fact that like we get to we we actually get a measure of how intelligent she is. Mm. Yeah. So we kind of got a hint of it in the mind robber where she was like you know, what do you mean you made Jamie's face wrong? Yeah. How could you have gotten that wrong, you idiot? <laughs> and I wonder if this is the doctor trying to redeem himself for that. <laughs> um, I I do love her little jabs at the doctor when he's answering the questions wrong. <laughs> yeah. Because that's where you kind of have that little bit of carryover of her automaton-like nature mm. where, you know, her berating him isn't helping <laughs> <laughs> but she just can't not say it there was one thing that reminded me of something it was like when he starts to answer an equation but he uses the wrong base 
for the maths. Mm. I'm just remembering you like fucking like I won't say constantly, but every so often singing the new math, the Tom Lehrer new math song <laughs> in my head. I'm like, going, I still don't fucking grasp it. Leave me alone with my two plus twos. One two base eight, which is ten base ten. Stop it. <laughs> <laughs> yes, we get it. You're the Zoe in the Simpsons. I'm the Jamie. <laughs> Maybe I should buy you your own Rubik's Cube for your birthday. You've done that before. I still haven't fucking got solved. <laughs> you you got me that big fuck off junior. Here here's the massive box. You know, <laughs> fucking thing. You know, still can't grasp my. Still, still can't do it. <laughs> uh, back to Zoe though. Um, yeah. All in all, I think it's great to see her and Zoe team up. It's great to see them working together, using their intelligence, bouncing ideas back and forth off each mm. other. I love their little byplay at the end when they were trying to buy for time and she was like slowly tipping the sulfuric acid into the thing. And I love the fact that she did call him on his gamble of it wasn't pure terillium or whatever it was. Yeah. And that wasn't pure sulfur either. So I know I I love that. I thought that was great. And like I I'm liking when they pair up. Yeah. Because I'm really, good. I'm really like it. I think it's good. Because like it, go, it it's going back to Bill. It's going back mm. to like, you know, you he, he could have his adventures with Barbara, he'd have his adventures with Ian and the Science Bros, he could have his adventures with Vicky or whatever it was. Here it was like and like back when it was uh Ben and Polly and Jamie, it was either with I think it was Polly, Polly or with the boys. Mm. Uh and then when Victoria came, it was never with Victoria. Nope. I know it's like we're getting a fair kind of shake of stuff, and like we're getting to see him interacting with other people, and we're actually going. To go. And and the best thing about it is, is that, as we pointed out, when Jamie's by himself, he can lead the story. So yeah. these are the kind of stories that would indicate, yes, a two or three person TARDIS crew can work. If and like with the Dominators, while mm-hmm. we didn't think it was the strongest story, Zoe could work by herself. Absolutely, and that's I don't know whether it's. Like just going forward in a modern time, whether it's just maybe a gamble they're not willing to take with modern audiences, or maybe the writers themselves don't really fancy their skills in it. But I, I do miss having sections where the companion is like a longer sections. Mm. I, I think that's the nature of the story, the, the way that it's told now is like it's one episode for a mm. story as opposed to breaking it up into several parts. Uh, it's why I love the cliffhangers because then you give a chance for the char- the companion character to develop away from the Doctor one thing I will say about this story in a sense is more so than the Crotons is um, and I answered this question uh, the other week around the invasion of when Zoe first came on board you mentioned that a lot of people when they think of Troutons TARDIS it's mm-hmm. the Doctor Zoe and Jamie yeah and I mentioned in the invasion that I wasn't seeing it. It was the Doctor and Jamie with mm. the Zoe <laughs> or the Doctor and Jamie with Victoria. At the beginning of this story, I can kind of see it. Yeah. You know, I can kind of see the three of them together before they splinter off into into the two groups. And I, I kind of see where you were coming from where people would see, you know, the three of them as that iconic image. Yeah. No, and that that's that's it. Like it's it's the later run of this season where that image comes from, I think. Mm. And it's a shame because, you know, 
I, I, you know, you get into a good, a good thing, and unfortunately, it wraps up. You know. Yeah. So, shall we go on to our story-based companions? Indeed, indeed. So, who do we have for our story-based companions this week, buddy? So we have Tara, or Thara, Celerus, and Beta. Indeed. And we have a prominent character to discuss in the form of Elek. Yeah. So out of Thara, Salaris, and Beta, we do Beta first because he's probably the lower uh, yeah. of the three. Um, so there is a very obvious discrepancy in the story, which is at one point in time, the Doctor and Zoe go to Beta. You know, you need to make this, this compound. It's very important. You need to make this compound. Oh, Salaris is going to, you know, attack the roots of the ship. Oh no, and they run away. Mm. And somehow Beta manages to apparate over to where Salaris is, discuss the whole thing of it, before the Doctor and Zoe turn up. Uh, that is, that's gonna, that leads into my scoring. Okay. That, that leads into my overall discussion. Yeah. Um, because somehow this guy's magic and he can teleport. Um, I think, well, overall though, go on. I was going to say that he managed to live a very successful double life as a French revolutionary agent. <laughs> that he did. That he did. Um, I think, for me, I think Beta was an interesting character. I would have liked to have seen the Doctor interact with him more. Um, I think if this had been a six-parter, I think Beta probably would have moved up into story Bay, like would have been higher up on the story-based companion rung. Um, but as a four-parter with the other characters, he just you know, he didn't get a lot of screen time. No. What I like about Beta is that like he's a scientist who knows that he doesn't know everything mm. and who knows that currently he can't know everything. Mm-hmm. So he says, I am the science counselor or whatever, whatever his title is. And I am telling you, we don't know enough. I'm not good enough. I don't know enough mm-hmm. for us to go to war with the Crotons because all of the knowledge I have, guess who gave it to me? The Crotons. It was the Crotons. <laughs> And I love that he owns it. Like he never yeah. tries to be like, "Oh, I can try and come up." With he knows the fact that like he doesn't have a basic understanding of chemistry. He's following the doctor's instructions. He has no fucking clue what he's doing. And like, it was a point where he's like, where they'd broken up more of the the sulfur. He's like, "Just fucking add in more." <laughs> he has no clue what he's doing. I, I really enjoyed that little mad science fish with himself and Jamie kind of going. We have no idea how how volatile it will be. Kaboom! You know. <laughs> um, I, I think he's great, and I think. I think it was nice to see a scientist in this who, particularly like a future alien planet story, right? Because yeah. we've had some cool scientists on Earth when stories like the, you know, Watkins and the uh, Traverses. Um, but usually when we have future stories or when we have space stories, the scientists are all a little bit, uh, a little bit tapped, shall we say. So it was nice to have a scientist who was so incredibly grounded that he will stand up and say, I am the head of our science. I don't know everything. <laughs> <laughs> I know two things, Jack and shit and Jack left town. <laughs> <laughs> Pretty much. <laughs> uh, no, I love Peter. Like, I love, you know, there was a damn it, Jamie, I'm a scientist. <laughs> um, I think, going, I completely agree with everything you said. Um, he was he was great. I really wanted to see more of him. Uh, he clearly went to Hogwarts at some point. <laughs> um, but I think there there's one thing about the way that the story ended, mm. and is that he now has possibly the best and worst task ahead of him. 
he gets to restart the education system for the gods. Hmm. Where the fuck does he start? So the one thing I would say is that he gets to restart the science education for the gods. Yeah. I would presume, like, the the Crotons took the top two students from each generation. In a very sort of Hunger Games-esque type yeah. thing. There are other people who would have been not the top two, but they would have been high up. And you have, um, what's her name? Zana, who's clearly... Vanna. Wants to help, or Vanna, sorry, who clearly wants to help him. Um, so I think from an education perspective overall, he won't be by himself. Mm-hmm. I'm sure there are other people who are very good at mathematics and very good at you know reading, writing. I'm sure reading, writing, and arithmetic they have covered. Um, it's specifically the sciences mm-hmm. where he can obviously teach everyone what he knows, but I would actually look at it from he is on the precipice of something amazing. Which is, he knows there's more that he doesn't know. So experimentation in the scientific method is literally now at his feet. Yeah, it's a very, um, I suppose he's got a very kind of Darwinian type thing like where he now gets to go to his version of the Galapagos like, to fucking do all his theories. Like He now gets to use like his his entire planet is now one big I suppose chemical lab run. Yeah. Um so I think, you know, will he see, you know, a full um gone society in his lifetime? Probably not. I have a funny feeling though that the fact that his education is no longer restricted to what the Crotons can show him. I'd say that's pretty exciting though. Oh, it's hugely exciting. But like my thing is like, you know, if the crotons were the one that supplied the learning materials and the crotons are now gone, like that, that therein lies the difficulty of the task. It's like, you know, okay, where will he, like, it's his own innate curiosity that will give him the stepping stones as mm. opposed to having a book with which he can glean information from and then expand from that. Yeah. So who's next? I don't know. Uh, father or son? Uh, we'll go with the father. Salaris is great and dumb all at the same time. Mm-hmm. The reason I say that, so he knows the Crotons are killing his people. And, you know, he goes to the doctor to see what's under the ship. They're talking about, like, what can we do? He explains the whole history to them. Now, he has said that he's concerned about telling everybody because there'll be another war and that will result in people dying. However, as soon as Zoe's name comes out of the thingy, he treats it as if it was any other instance <laughs> where a name came out. Oh, there's no choice but for her to go. Like, Dude, were you, were you not paying com- attention to the conversation we were just having? <laughs> <laughs> they're evil. You know they're evil. She's been chosen to be a companion. No, no, she's been chosen to die. You know this. <laughs> we were literally just fucking talking about this. <laughs> you idiot. Um, so it's like, he has greatness in him, particularly at the end. Like I think his last, like, I think the last episode for him is is great. Yeah. Um, but fuck me, he's dumb as well. <laughs> <laughs> With his little John Pertwee roll through the door. <laughs> that was very good. Yeah. Um, I remember when he was giving like the backstory to the um, 
you know, the, the conf- you know, the arrival of the Crotons, you know. And obviously we haven't seen the Crotons at this stage. And he said, the Silvermen. I was going, I swear to God, if the fucking Cybermen don't piss off from this season. <laughs> <laughs> I, 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 I did think that it was like, well, I, okay. So as he was telling the story, like the Silver Soldiers came from the sky. I was like, okay, the Cybermen came to this planet. Cool. Um, and I thought it was that like the Crotons saved them. Mm. And then this whole like tribute Croton companion thing was like as a thank you mm. for that. That's what I thought he meant. <laughs> <laughs> it's very four, five, six, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. Maybe we might eventually get to speak about the four, five, six. Who knows? Mm-hmm. <laughs> Must actually watch that again at some point. You uh, have to watch it all in one go. Or you have to. You have to watch the five days. You can't just. Oh yeah, no. I go. But see, the question is now: Do I watch it one a day? Like you. I will. And I I love you for forcing me to watch it one a day, or will I just watch it all in one go? Yeah, we'll see. Yeah, um, but no, like I again, you've been in my notes because <laughs> I agree with everything you just said about Celerus. The I like his subtle way of taking on the Crotons in the sense of you don't know, like they're they are superior to us in terms of technology and weaponry. We have to play the long game. We have to unfortunately sacrifice a few pawns, if you will to make sure that the rest of the board stays relatively safe. Um, and he gets a very noble sacrifice. And I love the fact that there wasn't a wasted effort. Is that mm. his sacrifice actually led to the defeat of the Crotons? Oh, I would have been gutted if, like, you know, he dove through the door and dropped the bottle on the way or some yeah. fucking shit like that. I would have been gutted for him if that happened. I like as well, the way he wanted to take down the Crotons was that he knew their ship was impenetrable. Yeah. So his idea was, well, if we attack the roots of the ship, they'll have to come out. Yeah. And, you know, it's a very, it was a very, you know, it was fundamentally flawed because he didn't fully understand how the ship was connected and and stuff like that. But it was a good concept. Mm. Do you know? Oh yeah. Um, it was a good way of hopefully avoiding bloodshed by, mm. you know, bringing the crotons to you on your terms. Um, it just didn't quite work out the way he'd wanted to, and it's really unfortunate that like so many people died because obviously he felt like shit. Um, but that's what I mean when that he has greatness, and is yeah. also a dumbass. <laughs> <sighs> uh, will we see if it's a case of like father, like son? Yeah, so what are your thoughts on Tara? So, not quite the same relationship of a, as another societal dissident that we previously met at the start of this season. Mm-hmm. Um, he's like he's not an unintelligent hothead, which is great. I, I I hate that fucking trope of like the leader of like the rebellion is like a is an idiot, you know, or is it just, um, or is just hot headed and like without kind of seeing the bigger picture. Like no, Tara is clearly he's an intelligent person. And he also seems to inspire loyalty and trust in those around him, which is great. Um, I would be very interested to see how the power struggle between himself and Elek gets resolved. Mm. I thought that was like a really, <laughs> that's a really fucking annoying cliffhanger to leave this story on because back at the time it was like, I, this will never be resolved. And I would, I would love if there was some sort of like you know big Finnish media to kind of, you know, again an audio adventure where they go back to the planet to see how gone society went back to normal or progressed without the the crotons. Yeah, 
I think with Tara, I mean, Tara is a bit of a hothead. Do you know? Well, he's, uh, on, he's on but he's a, we, Yeah, he's a bit of a hothead. Yeah. He's not unintelligent. Uh, yeah. I was surprised that um, his father was able to talk him down so much mm. from attacking the Crotons. I mean, yeah, he leads the attack on the, the learning hall. Mm-hmm. But particularly once Elec gets his blood up, do you know, and Elec yeah. is trying to go forward. I was a little bit surprised that he didn't want to do more. Like he was evacuating with Vanna mm-hmm. when his dad was trying to take down the ship. And I was a little bit surprised that he wasn't engaged more in that. Like maybe teaming up with his dad a bit more. And like the two of them sort of realizing that they both have the best interests of the Gond people in mind. They were just looking at it from two different perspectives. Yeah. Um, will he make a good leader? Yes, I think he will. Mm-hmm. If he can keep his temper in check. But I think I think what will happen is if he is successful in taking back control, he'll have Vanna on one side and he'll have Beta, Beta on the other side. Yeah, I think with them he'll be fine. Yeah. Um, particularly yeah. because we'll get to him in a second. He like kind of went off the reservation a little bit. Just a small bit, just a tad. Uh, so yeah, I'm, I I think like I want to track down if there is a sequel to this story somewhere along the line because. Mm-hmm. That cliffhanger is, uh, it's a great cliffhanger. And like we've talked before about characters that we'd love to know, like what happened to them afterwards. This is definitely, for me, this is definitely one of them. Mm. So we now have the prominent character of Elec. What a fucking gobshite. Like he's told that if the Dinotrope takes off, it will wreck the city. If the Dinotrope explodes, it will wreck the city. Launch an assault with spears and fireballs. But also, like, the thing with Elec is Elec was the second in command when it came to the ceremony. Yeah. He clearly takes it very seriously. You can tell that he's very um, stoic the whole time. Clearly, you know, a position of honor to be the one to cloak the others or whatever. And then obviously he finds out what's happening. And he's like, no, we want to destroy the Crotons. I was like, okay, well, we can clearly tell why you weren't chosen to be a companion, you dope. Mm. You don't have, you can't go after their ship with fire. What even is a fireball, first of all? I'm presumably it's actually literally a giant fireball. Like pitch, like just. Yeah. Yeah. You can't go after it with that. Um, The possibly most intelligent person in your society, in the form of Beta, is telling you you can't do it. Mm Mm-hmm. The most intelligent people to ever visit your society in the form of the Doctor and Zoe are telling you you can't do it. And he's like, no, I want to destroy the Crotons now. Oh no, your idea that was actually really intelligent didn't work. Mm. I, I will destroy the Crotons in my own time. <laughs> in my own way. Shush. Sure. The fact that he's like, Yo, I will destroy them in my own time. And then he's like, going, two seconds ago you were like oh we'll leave the assault and i was like i'll do it i'll i'll, I'll, I'll do it when, I, when i'm ready yeah stop looking at me when i'm ready <laughs> shut off <laughs> um also like so he agrees to hand over the doctor and zoe yeah. and look and the reason he's a prominent character is because he is not a villain for the companions throughout the story he's an adversary for Celerus and thara more so than yeah. anything and he's an obstacle for yeah he's an companions. obstacle and look you like you could say that 
did if we did not know the heroes, okay? If we, if we weren't following the exploits of the TARDIS, if we were following the exploits of the Gon Society, handing over a pair of strangers to the people that in in exchange for them leave, your your oppressors leaving, it's a deal that most you know fucking leaders would possibly make. You know, he needs the money situation there. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, but he highlights his stupidity by going right. Why don't we use the excuse of handing them over to rush into the fucking ship? Yeah, he he's just a fucking yeah. he's a gobshite, like you know what I mean. And how how this is the thing, right? Mm-hmm. This is the thing about gobshites in science fiction. Yeah, in fiction in general, particularly in science fiction. How exactly did he take over the council without Salaris or Beta, who are both council members, being present? You do not have a quorum, sir, without <laughs> without the head of the council. And the guy who, like, I know his his name is Beta. He's not, like, the Beta. Like, he's not, like, yeah. the, the same. Yeah. But I get the feeling he kind of is. Yeah. You know, it's his name and his function. I was like, how do, how do, how do you control the council when they weren't even fucking there? You no, know, it was a coup. It was essentially an off-screen coup d'etat. He, he, he and his supporters essentially decided that, like, I'm going to oust Salaris from power. And... But he said that he was voted in by the council. I was like, well... How big is the council? But but again, see, this is another part of my issue with the writing of this story. Mm. Uh, but yes, Elick is a gobshite. So, better look next time, Philip Maddock. <laughs> <laughs> hey, he has some good ones coming. Oh, he, he, some, oh, he, he, he does. He, he does. Yeah. So, which is a said better look next time. <laughs> uh, so now we move on to the villains, the Crotons. They're an interesting concept. They are, and it's a concept. The idea that you could, the idea that you can dissolve into your constituent elements mm-hmm. and reform as needed is great. It's actually going. It's a concept that's going to be res, uh, revisited much later down the line, mm. and in my opinion, it is done much better. By whom? Uh, Fires of Pompeii. Ah, oh, yeah. Hmm. You, apparently, as well. So I was looking up the crotons on the Taurus Wiki. Apparently, the idea of like the silica-based life form is mm. where the basis of the Zylock that later takes on the name of Mister Smith mm. came from in Serge Animatrix. Ah, that's pretty cool. That's the Russell Davis got the idea from. Like, I again, like I like the concept. I, I I think it's a fascinating concept. Unfortunately, here it's it's a, it's poor execution. Hmm. And I think had they not been so large, probably would have been a bit better if they had been streamlined a small bit more. Did Be- you have any issue with the accent? It's vaguely South African. <laughs> um, like you know, like, it, like there's. It, it, they speak with a very South African accent, so it actually feels like a lot of the stuff that they're s- stating as fact is coming out as a question. <laughs> <laughs> it's the li- it's the lilt, it's the yeah. lilt. Because it, it's the thing that I don't know whether I liked it or hated it, because the design was horrific. Hmm. The design was abysmal. But to hear this non-robotic voice, because it wasn't a robotic voice, it was no, just a it's... normal voice. Um, it wasn't textured or anything. I was like, does that make it better or worse? Because they're not robots. It's like you're at like you're at a, you're listening to the conductor of a train station in Johannesburg over a really bad PA system. <laughs> um, 
that like it was as I said, it was very distracting because a lot of it did sound like yo, like they're asking a question. It actually reminds me of a comedian I saw. I was like, yo, he, he was on with the Australian accent. He said the Australian accent, it always sounds like you're not sure what you're saying. It was like, where someone says, like, oh, where are you from? Sydney, Perth. <laughs> I was remembering now someone did a YouTube video about the accents of Ireland. Oh, yeah. And um, he, he wasn't kind to people from Cork or people from Kerry from that matter. <laughs> no, no. I was like, and now we come from the People's Republic of Cork, <laughs> where they talk like this. <laughs> It's like we don't talk like that, you bastard. <laughs> no, others like um, Irish comedian Neil Tobin. He did one like for all the accents. He's like, yo, Drahada, but it's Uvla ours and, <laughs> and or Tommy uh, Tiernan when he was like, can you imagine if the president was Irish or yeah. the president was from Cork? <laughs> I'm the president I'm of Ireland, president. and I'm from Cork. <laughs> In the name of the Father. <laughs> <laughs> the Pope is we don't talk like that. No, we don't all talk like we that. We don't. Although, like, um, my brother-in-law, he's like um, from Cork, and I think, yeah, you've met him. Mm. And like, he's our our sister-in-law, who is from New Zealand, can only really properly understand him when he puts on a fake voice. <laughs> uh, it, it does make me wonder. Um, how people who are not really familiar with Irish accents, how well did they understand this podcast? <laughs> I'm going to assume very well that is until I go home to Kerry and come back the day before the day that we record, which because we record during the week won't be happening. <laughs> cool. Have you any other thoughts on the crotons? No. Cool. Then we will leave the strange accented crystal <laughs> crystalline robots uh where they are in a weird soup like <laughs> state again with the soup, the soup. <laughs> i'm sorry but that's all i could think of so we come to the end of our discussion which means we have to give our overall thoughts so, Paddington, I'll ask you first. The Crotons, are we continuing our good story streak in your mind? Or have we have we fallen off the line a little bit? So, here is my dilemma, okay? Mm-hmm. As a concept, I enjoy it. Mm-hmm. I thought we had a very good supporting cast. Yeah. Like, uh, between Elix, Celeris, Bain, Vanna, who didn't contribute much to the overall story, but the actress did a really good job. Oh yeah, she's very good. Yeah, so like, maybe not to say, like, as strong as we've uh, talked about in previous ones, mm. but definitely like a really, really good one. Um, some great performances from our core cast. There's two things that really af- affect the score a small bit in my mind. Yeah. One is the Crotons themselves, the design of them. Mm. It, they're very hard to take seriously as a threat. The other thing, though, is that there is some very jarring editing and directional decisions in this, Mm. in the sense of the last five minutes of episode three are completely retconned at the start of episode four. Mm. And you even see, as you even said it like that, um, they go to uh, Beta's house and he tells them that, oh, Jamie possibly went inside the Dynatrope. And they go to the, law, the halls of learning and Beta's already beaten them there. Then, at the start of episode four, 
for some reason, the doctor went to pull the Celerus out of the thing. And it's for some reason, Celerus is back in the thing at uh, the start of the fourth episode. And he tells them Jamie has gone inside the Dynatrope, at which point Joey the doctor completely had forgotten their purpose for coming into the place in the first place, which was to find Jamie. So there's some. I think there's, again, like we talked about, like some dialogue decisions that, like, things that work for stuff is left hanging, and it doesn't really make sense as the story progresses. So that kind of took the spoils of a small bit for me. Mm. So I I put it as a 2.5 out of 5. Because, okay. yeah, like it's it's like, it's not like, it's not like a, like a complete standout. It's got some really good performances, but the the execution and those editing and directional decisions they just really kind of suck suck me out of the story you know hmm. more so as more so than seeing like a set wobble because you know because of you know tape issues or as we'll see down the line the infamous hand of Sutek <laughs> like um, that stuff doesn't take me out of it because that's kind of very blink and you'll miss it this. This is the end of an episode being completely overhauled because, for whatever reason, it started the next episode. Mm. How about you? So, my thing is, I think we had a bit of underdevelopment in some respects. Mm-hmm. Um, so, how did Elec take over the council? Yeah. Um, that type of thing. I think the actors' performances across the board were very good. Is it moon-based level? Is it the invasion? Is it level fear? No. Is it is it very good though? Yeah. Um. It's not quite like a, I think with the moon-based level fear and the invasion, we've sort of hit like a nice top tier there for our supporting cast. Yeah. Um. I wouldn't quite rank it that high, but it is still very very good. I loved Jamie and Zoe in this. I loved. Zoe with the Doctor in this. I thought that was fantastic. The Doctor had some great moments in this. He had a couple I wasn't a big fan of, but he had some great moments in this. And I quite enjoyed watching it. Now, mm. the Crotons as a concept I find incredibly interesting. That they can dissolve into their constituent parts and wait. And mm. clearly still be cognizant because they were clearly controlling the robots that were yeah. doing the work. Um, I think is very interesting. I think the way that they enslaved the Gons was very interesting. I think my issue with them was the design was a bit naff, but we've had bad designs before, so it doesn't really bother me all that much. But what kind of bothers me about the Crotons and that story is, oh, you came from the wasteland. I mean, how big is the Croton ship? The wasteland is the other side of the ship. Mm-hmm. How big is the ship? Yeah. Because from the sounds of things, you can run from one side of it to the other in five minutes. So the wastelands is like, you know, respective of where I'm sitting right now, it's the soccer pitch that's over the wall. Yeah. It's not quite a bit of a wasteland if it's just over there. It's not quite like Spaceball 1, you know, we break for nobody. <laughs> um, Was it a great story? No. Did it have good potential and a good concept? Yes. Was it bad execution? No, it just wasn't great. So mm. I gave it a three. 
Um, I didn't want to give it less than a three because I didn't have enough reasons to not like it. Mm. And I did thoroughly enjoy it. I did go, oh, cool. End of episode. Next one. Yeah. Oh, cool. End of episode. Next one. And I, I did thoroughly enjoy it. I just don't think it's the best structured and it could have been better. So there's, there's always been like this case and I, I, I've only ever experienced it with modern Who fans now, right? Is that certain stories in the classic era should have been shorter. Mm. Is this, and like I don't, I look, I don't generally agree with that. There's maybe like 5% of the stories that I've seen that I think, you know, yeah, you want maybe knock an episode off. Mm. But generally I think, no, everything is more or less perfectly paced. Do you think that this is one that could have benefited from maybe another episode or two? I, I know what you mean. So I said way back when, mm-hmm. a year ago, Daleks was a seven. Mm-hmm. It should have been a six. Mm-hmm. Um, there's been a couple of others that were, you know, sixes, maybe should have been a four. I think this is one is a four. I don't think it would have stretched to a six. I think it should have been a five. Yeah, because we've had we had two fives already this season, like so. Yeah, I think it could have done with being a five. It would have rounded off those few edges. You're given maybe a council scene with Elek, established mm-hmm. that. Had a bit more breathing room around the sulfuric acid and what's being done with that. Um, maybe give Vanna something to contribute as she is now. By the Crotons machine logic, she is now the most intelligent person mm-hmm. in this society. Yeah. I think one extra episode. Yeah. To sort of tie... Without, it's not even to tie the bits together. It's to let the loose ends come back together again. Do you know what mm-hmm. I mean? To, to give them that little extra bit. So like I said, I think Elec in the council scene is probably the big one for me. Yeah. I think that was missing. I think, you know... Beta and Thara working together a bit more would have been good. Um, I don't think it would have pushed. I think if it had been a six, I think we would have been bored. Yeah, because see, then it's like you're entering the potential of where like they take down the Crotons and then they take down Elec or vice versa, you know? Yeah. Uh, whereas, as I say, look, I, I'm very frustrated by it, but I think the whole helping Thara take, reclaim his seat in the council that's a separate story. Yeah, the, and yeah. The, the once the, gun, the protons are destroyed, that's a separate story entirely. Yeah, the the gun side of things is, is yeah, different. Yeah. I think we could have drawn out the destruction of the protons a little bit. Yeah, just a small bit. Um, I think it maybe would have been interesting from a timing perspective if Zoe had had to go into the proton ship on her own. Mm-hmm. And then the doctor's trying to use the machine to get a high enough score to go in after her. Yeah. No, and we have I a know. bit of time there. And while he's trying to figure that out, you have Elec over on the other side in the council trying to trying to do that. Do you know? Yeah. Um, so I think that may have helped with the pacing a bit more. And I think with something that would have been that five episodes, the the thing with like Beta being like a weird teleporter may have been caught when you had a longer story. Mm-hmm. Do you know? But yeah. Yeah, I think 2.5 and a 3. So, you know, sadly not the upwards direct, you know, direction we were hoping for. No. But not terrible. 
No. I I think if you want a good Zoe and the Doctor story, I think this is a good one for that. And where does that leave our seasonal score at the moment? So that puts our seasonal score. You are on 3.06 and I am on 3.25. So we're still wishing the below 3.5 bracket each. Yeah. Um, um, I, to be honest, it was, for me, that was the Dominators. Um, really tanked that because I gave the Dominators a 2.5. Yeah. Uh, I was kind of hoping that we might stick in the 4 range, you know. But we'll see. We still have three more stories to go. Yeah, we do. And what is the next story? So the next story is going to be The Seeds of Death. <gasps> Bloody sesame seeds getting stuck in our throats. <laughs> <laughs> Until then, we'll talk to you next time, everybody. Bye. Bye.